1 Corinthians 2. As we begin the sermon this morning, we do have outlines. If you were not able to pick one up as you came in and you would like an outline for this morning's service, please raise your hand and Evan will come around and get you an outline. We'll be sure that you have that framework with which to be able to follow along this morning. I'm getting ambitious this morning. I've, I've found something to be the case as I've stepped into this series in Corinthians. Um, the messages have become really long. And I'm having to do a bunch of two-parters or, or being tempted to do a bunch of two-part sermons. The, the thought is the same. So I want to do one sermon's worth of thoughts, a certain number of points and such. But the sermons are getting a bit long. Now this sermon is a little bit longer than a typical one. I'm going to try to hasten through it uh, so that we're, we're not here too long. But um, please pray for me that I would have discernment as I'm doing my study on any given week so that I can know how much we ought to pack into one service. Uh, should I do two-parters? Should I just cut down the amount I'm doing and refocus them a little bit? I'm finding it very difficult with the deep doctrinal truths found in uh, 1 Corinthians to, um, to parse that out entirely. So please pray for me in that regard as we step into this, uh, this series or we continue in this series in 1 Corinthians. We're in 1 Corinthians 2. I'd like you to think back with me to the time when you began your Christian life. When you were born again. That time where you were born into the family of God. For some of us, perhaps most of us, you can remember that moment. You can remember the moment where perhaps you prayed a prayer or um, you, you called upon the Lord in some manner and you can remember the moment where uh, you were saved as a moment of calling upon the Lord. For others of you, it may have been a moment where uh, you know you believed, where you accepted what you had heard and the scales fell off your eyes and things changed and you were that new man, that, that man that's spoken of. If any man is in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things have passed away. All things have become new. Your thoughts changed. Your desires changed. Your priorities changed. And you were saved. But you know, beyond just the sins which fell away after our salvation, the ways in which we became a new creature, following our salvation, there's also a process where our minds must be renewed. Where we must reject the thinking of this world and put upon ourselves, or clothe ourselves with, we might say, a biblical worldview. Now, we memorized last month in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 26-29. through 29. That was our church memory work. And as we did so, we memorized uh, and, and considered three such philosophies that were mentioned. The three philosophies mentioned in those verses were wisdom, might, and honor. Wisdom, might, and honor. You know, for some of us, before we were saved... We were very wise in this world. And our salvation process, or the, the moment of our salvation required that we set aside the wisdom, and by process there I didn't mean salvation is a process, I mean the process leading us up to salvation. The transaction that occurred at our salvation uh, forced us to set aside worldly wisdom to accept the foolishness of the gospel. For some of us, we were very mighty. 
And as we came to the point of accepting Christ as our Savior, we had to set aside our own abilities, our own capabilities, in order to allow Jesus Christ to do for us what we could not do for ourselves. Perhaps for some of us, we were very honorable. We had a good reputation. We we were powerful. We had prestige. Maybe in our family. Maybe in our society. Maybe at our workplace. Maybe at wherever. Already in church. Maybe it was in church. People people thought you were saved, thought you were Christian. And uh, the moment where you, you... were saved, you had to set aside that reputation. You had to set aside those elements of pride so, and humble yourself before God so that He might lift you up. But testified throughout Scriptures that the majority of those that come to Christ are not those that are wise in this world, mighty, rich, or honorable in this world. The statistics say that it's far more likely for children to come to Christ than adults? Well, the reason being because children have not had time yet to work into themselves uh, delusions of grandeur, perhaps we might call them. They have not had time to solidify their pride and their honor and their wealth so that it's much easier for them to humble themselves before God and come to Christ. And the Scriptures testify here in 1 Corinthians that few men and women who attain unto great wisdom, great honor, great riches are willing to give those things up for the sake of Christ. We have, however, perhaps a unique situation in 1 Corinthians in the city of Corinth. The book of Acts tells us that there were two leaders in the city of Corinth that did come to Christ. They were both leaders of the Jewish synagogue. One was named Crispus, the other named Sosthenes. They both came to Christ there. And as we see the correction in in chapter 1, as we saw that over the past two weeks, and as we elaborate on this correction in chapters 2 and 3 over the next few weeks, we quickly understand that the people who did in fact receive the gospel in Corinth were men and women who had some level of worldly wisdom. You know, what a wonderful thing it must have been for Paul to step into the city of Corinth and to see these men and women whose minds had been so filled with worldly wisdom, the worldly philosophies of the age, the worldly priorities and the rhetoric of the Greek culture, willing to humble themselves before God and receive a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. If we follow what happened in the book of Acts, this same thing certainly did not happen in the city prior to Corinth. Just prior to Corinth, Paul had been in the city of Athens. He had gone up to Mars Hill and he had spoken to them of the unknown God. And he had told them that this unknown God was in fact Jesus Christ. And he he had them. They were listening. They were intrigued. Because they were always looking for some new thing. Until Paul mentioned the resurrection. And the moment he mentioned the resurrection, they tuned out. And it says that the majority of them mocked. Some of them said, we'll hear you again on this matter. And a few believed. As a whole, Paul had not had very good success in Athens because worldly wisdom had blinded the eyes of the listeners. And yet in Corinth, he had had decent success. Perhaps something that Paul had never seen anything like it before and he may never have seen anything like it afterward either. But you know, this circumstance is not without its particular difficulties. When people that are wise in this world come to Christ, they're, they're, they're... 
are certain difficulties that must be overcome. And one of those difficulties is the unlearning process that a person must go through after salvation. The process whereby we recognize the various lies that the world has inundated with. And as the biblical worldview forms in us, we have to release those lies. We have to let go of that which the, the, the entire breadth and length of society calls true in order that we might align ourselves with the wisdom of God. This process must happen in today's American Christian just as it had to happen in Corinth. When you were saved, your mind was renewed. You were a new creature, but you didn't forget. Your mind didn't forget all the lies of pseudoscience and philosophy and psychology that are preached to us on a daily basis. And for some of us in this room, we've still not gotten beyond those lies. For some of us in this room, we have not ever gotten to the point where we have successfully built a biblical worldview, a biblical framework on top of our salvation. For some of us, we are Christians, but our minds are still steeped in the thinking and the philosophy of the world. And such was the case in the city of Corinth. And as we step into Paul's teaching today in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, we're going to try to get through the entire chapter. Paul is going to describe the way in which he approached the people of Corinth knowing that they were men and women of worldly wisdom. He is going to describe the way in which he came to them in order to ensure that their, that their faith was placed not in the wisdom of man, but in the wisdom of God. And as we do so, we're going to see the importance of transferring our minds, your mind and my mind, away from the wisdom of the world and toward the wisdom of Christ. And this is very important because we, we can't be out of the world completely nor ought we to be. We often say that we need to be in the world, but not of the world, and it's true. You're going to go to your businesses, your, your places of employment, and you're going to deal with unsaved people who have no concept of godly wisdom. You're going to go to your school classrooms, and you're going to be dealing with a teacher and with fellow students that have no concept of God's wisdom. They are steeped in worldly wisdom. And you know what? A lot of it might sound good. And if you are not actively pursuing the mind of Christ, then you will fall into the mind of the world. And so we need this. We need to look at what Paul did and how Paul helped those that were steeped in worldly wisdom. And then we need to consider some of these elements for our own lives as well. And the first point is foundational. The first point I'd like us to see of the two points that we'll have this morning is that your faith rests in Christ, not in man. Your faith, your faith, the foundation of your faith, it rests, it's founded in Christ, not in man. And this is in verses 1-5. through five. Look at it with me. Paul says, And I, brethren, when I came to you, came not with excellency of speech or of wisdom, declaring unto you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you, save Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my preaching was not with enticing words of man's wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. That your faith should not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. As Paul begins in 1 Corinthians 2, he begins by recounting the days where he first began his ministry in Corinth. He stepped into Corinth. He had left Athens. He'd come to Corinth. Timothy was still not with him. Uh, his, his crew was not with him yet, Timothy and Silas. It was just him. 
and he had come into Corinth, and he was looking over the city and determining his game plan, if it were, as it were, excuse me. And verse 1 states that he did not approach them with excellent speech and wisdom as he declared the testimony of God. In fact, according to verse 2, he says that he determined. That word is the word in the uh, scriptures in the Greek that means to judge or to determine or to um, decide. He had decided, determined, judged, distinguished that he would not know anything except one thing, Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Last week we looked at the offense of the cross. The reality that the cross is indeed offensive to the mind of man. And Paul says, I determined not to know anything among you but Jesus Christ and Him crucified. But the offense of the cross. There are many ways to approach evangelism. Paul demonstrates many of these approaches throughout the book of Acts. Oftentimes, when he entered into a city, he began going into the synagogue and reasoning and disputing with men. Even when he first entered Corinth, Acts 18 tells us that he reasoned in the synagogue of the Jews, but to no avail. In Athens, the, a, um, found in your scriptures in Acts 17, excuse me, we witnessed Paul, even as he was on Mars Hill, he quoted secular Greek philosophers in order to reason with the people concerning the realities of Jesus Christ. He actually quoted Greek authors of the day and of the previous generations in order to seek to convince the men and women on Mars Hill of His purpose, of Jesus Christ. And so Paul, it's not as though he never used worldly wisdom. It's not as though he never used fair speech. But when he came to Corinth, particularly recognizing how poorly he was received in Athens, he had reason to do something a little bit different. You know, we do this sometimes as well. Sometimes it's beneficial to be able to take the philosophies and concepts of this world and to aptly explain why they are false, where they are confused, or to explain even some of the similarities between what the world believes and what the Bible says. But Paul had found very little success in Athens and knowing that the Greek culture, the culture in Achaia, was one of worldly wisdom. He determined not to use worldly wisdom, any excellency of speech, any excellency of wisdom, but rather to preach only the cross of Jesus Christ and His resurrection. That being said, even without worldly wisdom of any sort, it cannot be said that Paul had no means of convincing the people, no physical external means of convincing the people. In verse 3, he states that he was with them in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. We take it this within its context to mean that he referenced his own ability to reason and argue according to the worldly methods of philosophy and logic. These two words, fear and trembling, are found together in various places in the Scriptures. In 2 Corinthians 7.15, we see the words fear and trembling used together. In Ephesians 6, verse 5, we see the words fear and trembling used together. In Philippians 2, verse 12, we see the words fear and trembling used together. And whenever we see these words used together, it speaks of humility and deference. So Paul says in verse 3, And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. He came to them in, in humility, in deference, and refusing to use philosophy and logic of the world, the, the reasonable arguments of the world, to make his point. Now, this doesn't imply that he was a coward. This doesn't imply that he was very soft in his presentation of the gospel, but that all attempts to get him to join the debate 
of intellectual and uh, of intellectualism or philosophy would be met with an immediate diversion to the gospel of Jesus Christ. I don't know if you've ever been witnessing to someone that uh, counts himself to be very wise in this world. I have done so on many occasions, and what I found is this. Whenever you're debating with someone that's exceedingly wise in this world, and they start to use those uh, elements of logical fallacy in order to try to back you into a corner, I remember my sister was uh, interacting with this, this guy one time that she knew uh, over email. And he started doing the, the, the whole backing into a corner thing where he says, well, you know, you say that, that you're not saved by works. Well, clearly you're not saved by works. However, isn't belief a work? And, you know, he uses that circular logic to try to convince people that, well, you have to do something. You have to believe. Therefore, belief is a work. And uh, you could spend all day debating with him. Semantics of the language. But you don't need to. And that's what Paul was saying here. He said, I could have spent hours, weeks debating with you about philosophies and semantics and all of this stuff, but instead, I determined not to know any of that among you. Not to go anywhere near philosophy and logic with you. I was just going to keep bringing the conversation back to Christ. And that's what I told my sister to do in that conversation. I told her, every time he brings this up, bring up the gospel again. Bring him back to Christ. See, because the heart knows that the gospel is true, regardless of whether they admit it or not. And so, they, whether they want to debate with you or not, if you keep turning it back to the gospel, their heart will be convicted and you'll keep the main thing the main thing. That's what Paul was doing here. Here were these people of worldly wisdom and he said, I determined not to know anything among you but Jesus Christ and Him and the cross of Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I kept turning it back to the Gospel. But though he came in humility of mind, he refused to get caught up in their philosophical debates. Verse 4 tells us that he also came not just in bold declaration of the Gospel, but also in bold demonstration of the Spirit and of power. He says, My speech and my preaching was not with enticing words of man's wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. In other words, Paul lacked intellectual acumen in his debates, but he diverted these efforts toward a personal demonstration of the power of God through the Spirit of God. This Greek word, translated demonstration, is a word used only one time in the Bible. This is the only time where it's used. In theological circles, we call it a hapax legomena. And it speaks of providing physical proof. It's the only time found in the New Testament. Physical proof. And so he says, I didn't come to you with enticing words, speech, but in physical proof of the Spirit and the power of God. Paul's purpose, as it stood according to verse 5, was that their faith would not stand in Paul's ability to reason well and to convince them, but rather that, his, that their faith would stand and rest in the power of God alone. As we consider what Paul just described here, the fact that he had neglected worldly wisdom and had leaned heavily upon the demonstration of the Spirit and, and power in order to be the agent through which they believed, it seems likely that he is describing his own demonstration of the Spirit's power through sign gifts. 
In other words, Paul did not openly seek to convince the men of Corinth through reasoning, but he convinced them through the gospel of Jesus Christ, and then perhaps what he means here by the demonstration of the Spirit and of power is his use of sign gifts. We know that God had endowed the apostles with temporary sign gifts given to them specifically for um, the ability to convince, and particularly the Jews, as we'll look uh, as we continue in the book, we'll see that these gifts were given specifically to convince the Jews. These gifts would have been that of miracles, of healing, of tongues. And Paul says that he used the demonstration of the Spirit and of power to convince them. In doing so, Paul was earnestly desiring that these men and women would place their faith not in his words or even in his actions, but exclusively in the power of God that they had beheld working through him. Now, I'm going to go on a side note just for a moment. If that is indeed the case, if Paul did indeed come to the, the city of Corinth and, <coughs> excuse me, and use a great number of sign gifts, the demonstration of the Spirit and of power, which is a possibility here, then perhaps it was his use of the sign gifts to demonstrate God's power and the Spirit's ability as he had a reason to do as an, as an apostle, a called apostle of God, that caused the Corinthian church to become out of balance in this area of the sign gifts. As we get into 1 Corinthians chapters 12, 13, and 14, we're going to see a, a large amount of rebuke by Paul toward the church in regard to the way that they were using sign gifts. And perhaps the reason why they were so heavily um, leaning towards these sign gifts is because that's how Paul originally convinced them through the demonstration of the Spirit and of power. Now, the Scriptures don't say this. I'm, I'm giving you a perhaps. Perhaps that's the reason why. And nor am I blaming Paul for the carnality that we see in the church. This, the imbalance with the sign gifts was simply a symptom of the cause, a symptom of, of their wickedness and carnality. But it is possible that the high degree to which Paul used sign gifts to demonstrate to them the Spirit and the power was a part of why they began to think that, well, anyone who demonstrates these same gifts is more spiritual than anyone else. We'll come back to that when we get to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. What we see in this first point, however, that first point being that our faith rests exclusively in Christ, not in man, what I'd like us to see is that Paul's greatest desire was that their faith would rest in Christ and that because faith in Christ is the exclusive means by which a person receives salvation, that they would seek only to Him for their faith. So it is with us that if you in this room are a born-again believer, if you have accepted Christ as your Savior, there was a point when you placed your faith and trust exclusively in the finished work of Jesus Christ unto salvation. And this is foundational. As Paul states here in verses 1-5, through their salvation, his method, he is laying a foundation for what he is expecting them to do next. And that foundation was Christ. He says, look, church of Corinth, your faith, when you got saved, your faith did not rest in me, my power, my, any of those things, my, my speech, it rested exclusively in the Gospel of Jesus Christ. And this is important for us to understand because now Paul is going to bridge the gap between their salvation, being saved, 
and their sanctification, living the Christian life. And this is the gap that we need to bridge this morning as well. When you got saved, if you are a born-again believer under the sound of my voice, you were saved by grace through faith, and that not of yourselves, as the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. That means that the foundation upon which you live your life uh, as a Christian was founded indeed on Jesus Christ alone. If it wasn't founded on Jesus Christ alone, then you're not a believer. But just as our salvation rested exclusively in Christ, what Paul's going to teach in verses 6-16 through of 1 Corinthians 2 is that so too our sanctification, our Christian life, our wisdom, our mind, our actions must also rest exclusively in Jesus Christ. And that's our second point. First point, your faith rests in Christ, not man. Second point, your wisdom must rest in Christ, not in man. In verses 6-16, through Paul presents a contrasting scenario to that which he presented in verses 1-5. through Whereas Paul describes the manner in which the Corinthians believed into salvation, he now describes the manner in which they grow as Holy Spirit-indwelled believers. Now, if I might sum up what we're going to talk about in one sentence, I would sum it up this way. You were saved by faith in God's wisdom. Now live your Christian life by faith in God's wisdom as well. Paul says in verses 6-8 through that the wisdom that we speak among ourselves as believers is a wisdom which is absolutely foreign even to the wisest men of the world. Look with me in verse 6. Paul says, Howbeit we speak wisdom among them that are perfect, yet not the wisdom of this world, nor of the princes of this world that come to naught. But we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, even the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the world unto our glory, which none of the princes of this world knew, for had they known it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Paul speaks here of speaking wisdom among them that are perfect. This word perfect, uh, the biblical definition of perfect, finished or complete, having all that is uh, required to one's nature or kind. So it's not speaking of sinless perfection here, it's speaking of completion. He's speaking of believers. He says, among believers, one among another, we speak wisdom. We speak God's wisdom. We speak a wisdom, not the wisdom of this world, not the wisdom of the princes of this world. That, that wisdom comes to naught. But he says, rather, we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery. The way that I would speak to you is very different than the way I would speak to the cashier at Walmart. If I were walking down the street with you, the things that we would say back and forth about politics, about raising children, would be very different than the conversation I would have with an unbeliever walking down the street speaking about politics or raising children or any of those other topics. See, because as believers, our mind has been changed and renewed. And as I would walk down the street with you and appeal to the authority of God's Word to make my points as to how we ought to live this life, if I'm walking down the street with an unbeliever and I appeal to the authority of God's Word, it's going to be foolishness. Now, that's not to say I wouldn't do it. But there's, there would be an entirely different dynamic to that conversation. And that's what Paul is saying here. He says that we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, verse 7, even the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the world unto our glory. He calls the wisdom that we speak one among another as 
wisdom of God and a mystery, as the hidden wisdom. And let's be clear what Paul is saying here. There is a philosophy that's been around since the early church and probably well before known as Gnosticism. The Gnostics. The Gnostics were a group of people that taught that they had secret wisdom given by God exclusively to them that was accessible only to those who joined and committed themselves to that religious order. What Paul is preaching here and teaching is not a form of Gnosticism. He's not speaking of a secret knowledge that can only be had by those that join a particular religious order. There are elements of Gnosticism found in many religions today. The Jehovah's Witness have a great deal of Gnosticism in in their uh, philosophy. The Mormons uh, have teachings of Gnosticism in theirs, the secret knowledge. By the way, that word Gnosticism comes from the Greek word gnosis, which means knowledge. That's what it's about, secret knowledge. The uh, Masons have an idea of secret knowledge. The Freemasons in their religious uh, observances, the uh, Masonic order, they are a Gnostic group. People that say, if, if you don't devote yourselves to our physical entity, then you have no means by which to get the knowledge you need to be right with God. That's not how the wisdom of God works. And so... Paul is not preaching here a secret knowledge. He's speaking here a mysterious knowledge, a hidden knowledge. In other words, a knowledge that comes only to those, as he'll say in a moment, that are indwelled by the Spirit of God. And it's not that others cannot intellectually perceive what we're saying. It's simply that when they perceive it, it's foolishness to them. Paul is not saying that we have secret, hidden Exclusive knowledge. The beliefs and teachings of the church throughout the world as rooted in the Word of God, these teachings are accessible to all men and can be intellectually grasped by all men. But an unbeliever sitting under the sound of the preaching of God's Word, hearing this mysterious knowledge, this hidden knowledge, will count it as foolishness until he accepts the conviction of the Holy Spirit and is therefore indwelled. Paul has already given an example in chapter 1 of this mysterious knowledge rooted in the cross of Jesus Christ. An example of the hidden knowledge, the knowledge and a mystery that Paul is speaking of, is the cross. The cross is not inaccessible to anyone in this world. Every single person can hear of the cross and can understand intellectually the cross. But until they accept the gospel of Jesus Christ, the cross is foolishness. I remember I had a teacher in high school who was, I don't know what he was, if atheist, agnostic, whatever. He was quite um, antagonistic to Christianity. And he used to say, Christianity makes no sense. And, and he used to use this example. He said, how would you like it if I came into school next Monday and I had an electric chair around my neck? He said, after all, the cross was nothing but a form of capital punishment, just like the electric chair is a form of capital punishment. How ridiculous would it be if I was walking around with, a, with an electric chair hanging around my neck? He said, that's how ridiculous Christians are. They're walking around with a form of capital punishment around their neck. That's all they're doing. He said, how foolish. See, he didn't understand. He saw the cross of Jesus Christ on all of these necklaces. He saw the cross of Jesus Christ as he would drive by a church. 
He could read the Bible and learn of the cross of Jesus Christ, but the power of the cross, the significance of the cross, was foolishness to him. Yet Paul said, I glory not save in the cross of my Lord Jesus Christ. He said, I determined not to know anything among you, Corinthians, but Jesus Christ and Him crucified. See, it's not that we don't, can't have the intellectual knowledge. It's that they see it as nothing but foolishness. That is the hidden knowledge. That is the mysterious knowledge that Paul is speaking of here. And he tells us that this should not be a surprise to us. In fact, God had prophesied of this very thing through Isaiah. In verse 9, he quotes Isaiah 64.4. We read it for our scripture reading this morning. But as it is written, I hath not seen nor ear heard, neither hath entered into the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for them that love Him. In contrast, we see the but there in verse 10. In contrast, Paul says, But God hath revealed them unto us by His Spirit, for the Spirit searcheth all things, yea, the deep things of God. The spiritual things of God are revealed unto us not because we're good people, not because we're really smart, not because we have the inside track, not, <clears throat> excuse me, not because we found the special hidden book that's been hidden from everyone for centuries and we dug it up and, and uh, now we can tell it to the world. The spiritual things of God are revealed unto us because the moment we were saved, we received the Holy Spirit of God and the Holy Spirit of God is our teacher, revealing to us spiritual things. And then Paul asks a question. Look in verse 11. He says, For what man knoweth the things of man, save the spirit of man which is in him? Even so, the things of God knoweth no man but the Spirit of God. He says, Who knows the things of man but a man? When you, tell, when you go out on the street, and you're witnessing to someone, or you knock on a door, and you're able to share the gospel, and you look at that person and you say, you are a sinner. How do you know that they're a sinner? Well, we know the Scripture says, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. But why does that ring so true? Because you're a sinner. You know your own heart, you know your own mind, you know you sin every day. You know that you've lied. You know that you've cheated. You know that you've stolen. You know that you've been bitter in your heart. You know that you have um, been anxious and been worried when you ought not to be. You know that you've sinned. And you know beyond a doubt that they've sinned too because you're human. And you know that human is, to be human is to be human. Now, someone or something that's not human cannot understand what it is to be human. An angel cannot know the things of man because he's not a man. An angel can believe that all humans have sinned, but they haven't experienced what it is to be a human. May I illustrate the concept a little bit for us? Over the next few days, many of the men in this room, and perhaps some of the women in this room, but many of the men in this room have the privilege of uh, Monday and Tuesday morning quarterbacking. For the Grismore family, it'll be perhaps the Nebraska game on Saturday. For me, it'll be the Broncos game today. And maybe some other games around the leagues. And what we'll have the opportunity to do on Monday and Tuesday is to tell everybody what all the quarterbacks did wrong. How they should have done this in this situation. How they should have thought of that. How did they not see the coverage? How did they not understand what was going on? What were they thinking when they threw that ball? And you know, for all of the time that we men will spend 
analyzing these quarterbacks, telling each coach, telling each player what they did wrong and what they should have done instead, we really have no authority to do that, do we? It's really kind of a foolish tradition, the whole idea of Monday or Tuesday morning quarterbacking. And the reason why it's so foolish is because I've never been an NFL quarterback. I don't know what they know. I can't see what they saw. I don't understand what they understand. I haven't had their coaching. Maybe they threw the ball where they threw the ball because they were trained to throw the ball there. And maybe the coach is going to come up and say, you know what, that one didn't go well for you, but you did exactly what you were supposed to do. And here I am on the couch eating my potato chips, telling them how terrible they are, and their coach has given them a pat on the back. Who can know what's in the heart of the quarterback but the quarterback? Who can know what the quarterback did wrong but the quarterback? Who can say the quarterback did what he did wrong if he's not a quarterback? If he hasn't experienced it? Now, I know you could probably break down my example, simple example, but what Paul is saying here is that no man can know what's in the heart of a man but a man. Not necessarily the man, but a man. That we know what we are as humans because we're human. We can understand the things of humanity because we're human. And he says the same thing about the Spirit. He says, For what man knoweth the things of a man, save the Spirit of a man which is in him? Even so, the things of God knoweth no man but the Spirit of God. How can a man, not being God, know anything about God? How can we know the expectations of God? How can we know what God would expect of us? How can we know how to do what's right? How can we know the wisdom of God? He says, you can't know the wisdom of God in the spirit of a man. But the spirit of God does know the wisdom of God. Two thoughts here. First thought. Can you see why it's so important that Jesus Christ became a man? That He took on flesh? That we have a God that's not just sitting in the heavens but a God that became a man and can understand temptation and can understand pain and can understand hunger? Because no man can know what's in the spirit of man but a man. And you know what? God knows what's in the spirit of a man because He's been a man. He is a man. Jesus Christ is God. But do you see the flip side? No man can understand the Spirit of God or no man can understand the wisdom of God but the Spirit of God. Do you see why it's so important that we have the Spirit of God? Do you see why there's something special about having the Spirit of God? Just like a person can't understand everything that a quarterback goes through until he has been one, just like a person can't understand the way of thinking of a man unless he has the Spirit of a man, so too a person can't understand God's way of thinking if he doesn't have God's Spirit. If a man is not indwelled by the Spirit of God, he cannot understand the things of God. Now I'm troubled by the many pastors and theologians and laymen who willingly place themselves under the authority of unsaved people for their lives, for their understanding. This is in fact one of the reasons why we reject the modern versions of the Bible. Because while many of those modern versions were um, translated by councils of men who profess faith in Jesus Christ, the Greek version behind their translation is compiled by scholars who have no loyalty. To say that they have no loyalty to the God of the Bible. 
Those that are creating the Nesalalan Greek text that forms the foundation for all of the new versions of the Bible are men without any foundation in Jesus Christ. Men who openly reject the, the veracity of the Bible. They know a lot about the Bible. They've spent their lives studying the Bible. But they don't have the Spirit of God. And that's one of the key reasons why we reject these modern translations is because the text underneath them is corrupt. The text underneath them is a text that is guided by man's wisdom, not by the Spirit of God. And it can't be guided by the Spirit of God when the men compiling it aren't guided by the Spirit of God. But we do the same thing, don't we? We turn the TV on, get on the internet, and we need advice how to raise our kids, what movies we should and shouldn't watch, whatever the case may be. And we seek to the wisdom of Oprah or Dr. Phil or Judge Judy or whoever. And we say, wow, you know, that's, that's some really good points. And, and these people have no concept of godly wisdom. They can't because the Spirit of God's not in them. Yet we search to them. Or perhaps we don't. Let's consider the implication of Paul's words here. Can you see where he's going with this? Look at verses 12 and following. He says, Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit which is of God, that we might know the things that are freely given to us of God, which things we also speak not in the, not in the world's excuse me, words which man's wisdom teacheth, but which the Holy Ghost teacheth, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. But the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him. Neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. But he that is spiritual judgeth all things, yet he himself is judged of no man. For who hath known the mind of the Lord, that he may instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. Paul says, in contrast to the worldly wisdom, we, if we are believers, have been given the Spirit of God. 1 Thessalonians 4.8 says, He therefore that despiseth, despiseth not man, but God, who hath also given unto us of His Holy Spirit. 1 John 4.3 says, Hereby know we that we dwell in Him, and He in us, because He hath given us of His Spirit. If you are a born-again believer in this room, you have been given the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God indwells you. And so verse 13 says that when we speak, we speak not in the world's wisdom as taught by the head of some man, but God's wisdom as taught by the Spirit of God. We compare spiritual things with spiritual, Scripture with Scripture, in order that we might understand and properly apply God's wisdom to every element of our thinking, every element of our actions, every element of our lifestyle. And in contrast, Paul says in verses 14 and 15, the natural man does not and indeed cannot understand or receive spiritual wisdom. These things are foolishness unto him because they can only be examined spiritually. But the spiritual man, who is intended to be completely defined by the mind of Christ, can receive, can understand, and can therefore judge that which is spiritual because he, according to verse 16, has the mind of Christ. Now I trust you see where Paul will go with this as we continue in chapter 3 next week. Paul has called these, car- these Corinthian believers carnal. 
that they have been dominated by their natural man and are being driven by their natural man. To the degree that they are allowing carnal, fleshly thoughts to control their lives, the spiritual man, the one that is, is driven by the Spirit of God in them, has been quenched, has been grieved, and cannot function properly. They are therefore unable to function as God intends them to function. They are unable to think as God intends them to think. And instead of building up a proper biblical worldview upon the foundation of their salvation as indwelled by the Holy Spirit of God, they are building on top of their faith man's ideas, man's wisdom. And they're doing so not because they don't have the Spirit of God indwelling, but because they are allowing their carnal man to dominate the spiritual man. And so they are building up a framework of carnality because the spiritual man, can't. they're not listening to him. And that's what we're going to see as we continue in chapter 3. That will be the rebuke. That will be the continuation of what Paul is saying here. That's going to be the link. Why did he rebuke them as he did? And why did he add this little element in chapter 2? Well, because he's rebuking them for being carnal and then he's reminding them that the spiritual man is a man that's dominated by the mind of Christ. And if they're carnal, that means they are not dominated by the mind of Christ, but they're believers. But they are believers, which means they are believers who are carnal, who are dominated by their flesh, not by the Spirit, who are quenching the Spirit of God and who have therefore built up on top of the foundation of their faith, worldly wisdom. And as we apply these truths to our hearts today and as we continue to apply these over the next few weeks, it's my prayer that you will be really honest with yourself. Now, I've given the Gospel throughout this morning's message and if you're sitting there today and you realize that you have never accepted Christ as your Savior, if you have sat there today as you've heard the Gospel of Jesus Christ, that which is founded in Jesus Christ alone and not in worldly wisdom and not in worldly strength and not in worldly honor, and you have never humbled yourself before Jesus Christ and the cross and accepted His completed work, I I implore you to do it today. And if you need some more clarity on that issue, may I encourage you to come see me after the service and we'll talk about it together. But I would believe that the majority of us in this room are Christians. You have been saved. You are well aware of the fact that your salvation was by grace through faith. You know that your foundation is on Jesus Christ alone. And you know that. But, you have allowed man's wisdom, man's thinking to be built on top of your foundation. You have allowed the wisdom of this world to divert you from the wisdom of God. You are saved by faith. The question is, where does your wisdom rest? When you need advice, when you need to know how to do something, which direction to go, where do you go to? Who do you run to? Some figure of worldly wisdom? You say, well, they have some good things to say. I mentioned that earlier. They do sometimes. Sometimes you can listen to one of these philosophers or one of these psychologists or whoever it might be and you can say, you know, that's right. But their accuracy is only as good as the degree to which they are conforming their advice to the biblical expectations, to God's wisdom. 
They're not doing it on purpose. They're not purposefully conforming their advice to God's wisdom. But under common grace, they see the wisdom of God's plan. They give advice. It's in line with God's word. And you can say, hey, that's good advice, whoever it might be. But are we placing ourselves under the authority of man's wisdom to guide and to understand what we ought to do? Let me ask you some questions. When you decide what to wear, or where to go, or what to watch on TV, or how to spend your free time, are you deciding that based upon some standard of worldly wisdom, or are you deciding those things based upon God's standard? Is it, well, this isn't as bad as... Are you trusting a rating... Are you trusting your neighbors? Are you trusting what's common, what's acceptable in society, or are you founding your decisions on God's Word? When you decide who you will vote for or where you will stand on political issues, which sources do you trust? Do you trust a certain party? Do you trust a certain news outlet? Or do you weigh each decision, each man, and each understanding politically on the wisdom taught in God's Word? See, it might just be that though we have the Spirit of God indwelling us as believers this morning, we have replaced the wisdom with God, which is so sufficient to secure our salvation with the wisdom of men when it comes to living this life. It might just be that we have bought into the world's talking points. And we have allowed the world's wisdom to override what the Bible says without even knowing it. And so our lifestyles, though we are saved by grace through faith, our lifestyles reflect compromise because we have given into the wisdom of this world. And if this is the case in your life, then there are elements of carnality in your life. Elements whereby the flesh has, been, uh, has overridden the Spirit of God. And you're a carnal Christian. To whatever degree you have trusted, accepted, and lived according to the wisdom of this world, at the expense of the wisdom of God, you have yielded your privilege to be taught by the Spirit of God, and you are carnal. Now, let me give you just a few examples. I've kind of mentioned a few things. Let me give you a few examples this morning. A few examples that are big in Christian circles today that might be indications that you have some element of worldly wisdom that has overtaken your understanding of the Word of God. This is not by any means comprehensive. If you believe in Darwinian evolution, you have allowed worldly wisdom to override the wisdom of God. If you believe homosexuality is an innocent lifestyle choice as opposed to sin, you have allowed worldly wisdom to override the wisdom of God. If you believe that marriage is based upon man's definition and can therefore be redefined by human governments, you have allowed worldly wisdom to override the wisdom of God. If you believe killing babies in the womb is a woman's right to choose, you have allowed women, uh, um, worldly wisdom to override the wisdom of God. If you believe that it really doesn't matter at all what kind of music you listen to, you have allowed worldly wisdom to override the wisdom of God. If you believe it doesn't matter at all what you wear, you have allowed worldly wisdom to override the wisdom of God. If you believe it really doesn't matter what you watch on TV, or what movies you watch, or any of those entertainment choices, you have allowed worldly wisdom to override the wisdom of God. We could go on. But you know, we don't need to go on. The Holy Spirit can pick up where I left off. In time, 
with prayer and a knowledge of God, His Word and His attributes, we all have elements of our lives that God works on us and shows us that this should not be a part of what we do. But we have the opportunity, as we sang at the beginning of the service this morning, to ask God to search us. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. You have the benefit of an entire congregation of men and women. We can talk. We can counsel together. We, you, you say, well, I don't know if this is right. I don't know if this is the direction I should be going. Well, come to God's people and ask them. And find it in God's Word. And if you can't find it in God's Word, see if there's someone else that has. And discern the principles of God's Word that dictate the way we live our lives. Perhaps there's one under the sound of my voice today who knows exactly what God has expected of you, but has allowed the love for this world, the desire for that carnality to override the clear expectations of God's Word. May I encourage you, if you know, if the Holy Spirit has pricked your heart about elements of the way you're living, the way you're thinking, and you say, I know it's wrong, get it right. As I mentioned, if you say, I know it's wrong, but I don't know exactly why, talk with someone. Get rooted, get grounded, get founded, not in worldly wisdom, but in the wisdom of God. How many hours do we spend listening to the advice of the world, reading the opinions of the world? How many hours do we spend reading the opinions of God? Let's get grounded. Let's get founded. That's what Paul is telling them in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. That the world's wisdom is insufficient and that we don't need it because we have the wisdom of the Spirit of God. Let's pray together.